0: So check that out. Finally, if there are any topics, guests you'd like to hear from, questions you want answered, or if you'd like to appear on the podcast, just send me an email to robsreliabilityproject at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Now let's get rolling. All right, hey guys, I'm here with Lucas Marino. He is the principal
1: consultant for Marino Consulting Services. He's the branch chief of the engineering and weapons school at the US Coast Guard in Virginia he spent over 20 years in different positions at the Coast Guard and he has a doctorate in engineering from George Washington University Lucas first off thanks for joining us on the podcast
2: Yes sir thank you for having me this is uh this is awesome thank you
1: And and how are you doing like you guys are In the middle of a hurricane, well, you were supposed to get one. So, how's that going?
2: Yeah, it was. uh, (laughs) It's funny you bring that up. I wasn't even sure we were going to be able to, you know, do today. If you'd asked me uh, three, four days ago, I'd have been giving you a big maybe on the schedule. But uh, it completely missed us here in Southeast Virginia. Uh, I live close to Williamsburg, and um, you know, we even we even dodged most of the rain. So, you know, it's not just uh, missing the wind; We're, we're missing most of the storm period. So, it's it's been we're, we were lucky.
1: Yeah, no, that's great. Now, um, I guess I wanted to add, like when we talk on LinkedIn, you said that you were doing some preparations to make sure that the, you know, that the school was ready to endure a hurricane. What kind of stuff did you do?
2: Oh yeah. So, um, at the training center, which is, you know, it's a full, it's a full on military base. Um, we have to set various levels of hurricane condition readiness uh, that uh, you know are prescribed by our operational commanders and so we go through this four or five uh, layers of hurricane condition readiness and uh, each one comes with its own unique little checklist and uh, you know being the the branch chief at the school kind of equates to being like a dean at a civilian school so all of our facilities, all of our equipment, all of our courses you know. Three four hundred students, one hundred and fifty staff. It's uh, accountability, preparing everyone for uh, you know possible evacuation, keeping accountability for those that do evacuate, you know, and then and then of course all the physical settings on the base, bringing the equipment in, making sure all of our uh, all of our training aids that are outside are secured and and, and battened down for the weather. So not quite as exciting as it would be if if we were on a ship getting ready to ride through it, which I've done before, but. You know, definitely a big evolution on the base. So,
1: so you've ridden through a hurricane on a ship?
2: Uh, several, yes, sir.
1: Tell tell us that story.
2: <laughs> uh, actually, and I'll try to keep it short because sea stories tend to be long. But uh, you know, uh, I was the first time I went through a hurricane on a cutter. It's a 270 foot ship, so it's not like a cruise liner, but it's also not like a small boat, and they ride horribly, anyways. I just remember thinking, we're, we're actually going to go through this thing, and uh, you know, you're the Coast Guard; it's kind of what you do. So, they um, they told us, "Yep, yeah, we're going through this." And I never uh, could have imagined what it would be like—you know, 30, 40 forty-foot waves, hurricane-force winds, all that stuff—and how well a well-designed ship can survive that kind of environment. Uh, of course, with the proper navigation and. And engineering in play but uh it's just amazing to see the power of nature on that scale from a place as barren as the ocean you know you, you never get to experience that on well i wouldn't say never but you rarely get to experience something like that on land it's pretty eye-opening
1: well yeah that's uh when you said you rode through one. i was like wow that's that's pretty impressive
2: yeah the, the coast guard uh, tends to go behind these things and do a lot of uh search and rescue um and it's actually safer for our ships to be out at sea than in a port in, in many regards during a hurricane because uh, ships and piers and ships and land don't get along too well. So, you know, if you can get the cutters or the ships away from the home port and out to sea, that's step one. Step two would be get out of the way of the storm. They're pretty big. So, you know, usually I end up riding through part of it. But I've ridden clean across one twice uh, through the eye and back out the other side. And yeah, you know, the cool part about the eye of a hurricane at sea is you, you ride through what feels like, you know, an eternity of rough seas and winds and and all the things that you would imagine it would be, and then all of a sudden stillness and the sun breaking out and big swells, but you're in the eye of a hurricane. It's it's kind of surreal to see the weather then flip back to immediately go to bad again because you're going into the other side of the eye. And all of your, um, your wind and everything is coming from the opposite direction at that point, as long as you maintain speed and course, Uh, because now you're on the other side of the wall and everything's, you know, (laughs) what was coming from the East is now coming from the West kind of thing. um, If you've, if you've made the right uh, navigation in there. So yeah, it's just kind of, it's kind of surreal to be honest with you. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing.
1: (laughs) It sounds, it sounds amazing. So like we're here to talk reliability. So how did you get your start in reliability engineering?
2: Um well, so I grew up in a kind of a stereotypical New York Italian family, you know, kind of like the Marissa Tomei of uh, my cousin Vinny, like everyone in my family is a mechanic, right? So um yeah, my dad is uh was was in the Coast Guard uh when I was younger and when I got out of uh, high school i said i you know if i if i can't go do all these other crazy things i'd like to do for a living i might join the military so i joined the coast guard to to get a life and and a career started and uh went to the recruiter and said i want to work on big diesel engines because i've just been in love with internal combustion engines since i was a kid and uh he was like boy do i have a job for you so (laughs) um you know typical entry you know boot camp all that stuff but then i went to uh to the training center where I currently work as a student and uh, and learned how to be a machinery technician, which is basically a shipboard mechanic of all systems on the ship, both propulsion and auxiliary. Uh, I mean, you name it, it's everything from diesel engines to fuel purifiers to generators to uh, liquid load systems, boat davits, cranes, everything. I mean, if it's mechanical, you're working on it. So I just absolutely fell in love with being a machinery technician. And obviously, there's a lot of maintenance involved in being a machinery technician. So that was my first introduction was through maintenance execution, you know, being handed a maintenance program to execute and then eventually grow up to manage those systems and learn a little bit more about what this whole RCM thing is or what is uh, condition-based maintenance um and, and as i matured in the coast guard i got more and more into the reliability side of uh of my uh, work and ended up uh leaving the enlisted workforce the machinery technician workforce to become a naval engineering officer in the coast guard and at that point you become um you know the person in charge of engineering for the whole ship so you know going from being a deck plate mechanic Maturing all the way through the ranks up to being the uh, chief engineer on board, which we call an engineer officer. Um, you know, just kind of you grow up in this culture of reliability and taking that seriously and seeing the outcomes of of good versus bad um, maintenance practices and reliability uh, engineering work uh, really kind of drove me to to seek that kind of work uh, after my active duty time comes to an end.
1: So let's let's dig into that a little bit more. So. What is the, like, what kind of maintenance do you guys do? Like, are you doing predictive maintenance? Are you doing RCM? What does that look like for the Coast Guard?
2: So we have uh, structured ourselves in a um, bi-level maintenance model where we have uh, O-level maintenance, organizational uh, level maintenance, which is the property and the responsibility of the unit, right? In this case, the unit would be like the ship, would be responsible for all of the O-level maintenance. And then the rest of the maintenance would be of a higher uh, level and impact uh, to a certain extent um, would be depot maintenance, and that would be the responsibility of the depot maintenance community, uh, exterior uh, entity called the Surface Forces Logistics Center, to manage and resource that. Um, even though it's still, you know, the responsibility of the ship to execute the maintenance. So. You know, you take all that together. You say, all right, you've got this bi-level maintenance model where you know the unit is responsible for some of it, and then the the depot maintenance community is responsible for uh, the remainder, <clears throat> the 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 larger maintenance picture. And what you realize is um, you've got in, in that mix mostly preventive maintenance. So on the O-level side, it's heavily preventive maintenance focused. We've got maintenance procedure cards that we um, we control and issue to the a unit for their applicable equipment and the technicians at that unit would then uh, take that card and it's their, it's their written procedure and they go out and they perform the maintenance. And then of course the unit would report the completion of that maintenance, the conditions they find. Um, and then, and then it would go up to the surface forces logistics center. Um, if, you know, if something wasn't jiving, when you get more into like our depot maintenance, you start to get a little bit more into um, some of our unplanned maintenance. Uh, you know. the the unplanned maintenance is is definitely what drives the reactive culture that we find ourselves in. when we're minimally resourced, Um, you know, the aging equipment, the, the complexity with the lack of training for technicians. I mean, you get all these different uh, obstacles that come out in in the, uh, in the uh, um, unplanned maintenance side of it. Right. So uh, we, we have tried uh, as a service over decades to implement, uh, a culture based on RCM uh, fundamentals, but uh, of course, like everyone else, we run into these barriers where um, we haven't fully matured a culture that respects and understands RCM. So we do have a lot of elements of RCM um, in our in our maintenance philosophy and our maintenance uh, program. However, uh, it, it's not anywhere near the level of maturity that it would need to be to be a healthy RCM culture and um, we have issues with determining whether we really want to embrace condition-based maintenance. A lot of that has just been resource dependent. You know, years ago we tried to roll out vibration analysis and thermo and all these things to, to, to really try and capture the predictive maintenance side of things a little bit more um, especially through, you know, organized CBM effort. But, We've, what we've found was the, the resources that are usually required to roll out more of that proactive maintenance are, are harder for us to obtain than we, you know, are willing to to fight, uh, you know, for in some regards as an organization. Um, and so, yeah, we, we've kind of got this quasi uh, proactive maintenance uh, element of uh, CBM and RCM going on, uh, which, is, which has created a, a really unique uh, culture rcm culture in that we are doing things that are rcm related and driven uh, from a strategic standpoint like maintenance availability or sorry maintenance effectiveness um, reviews and uh you know prototyping maintenance before we just push it out there and get validation on the cards you know all these things that seem to be pretty logical steps in an rcm program um, come to us as a is a pretty significant challenge because we don't have that fully matured culture yet so you know i don't know if i went like in too many circles there for you but it's it's kind of a of a very i don't how do you say it we've been around for over 200 years right we've got some of the perfect equipment equipment to uh to implement rcm and cbm on um, but we we sure haven't fully embraced the culture of RCM yet. And and I think a lot of that is just because we've, we've lacked some of the strategic drive and uh, leadership initiatives that it would take to get that out there fully.
1: No, I think that, you know, everyone listening is going to have that same, those same challenges. It's like, it's like that everywhere. And it's it's actually funny because, I mean, as you probably know, like RCM was developed with the, I think it was in partnership with the the Air Force and so it is actually a military thing, I guess.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, military life, culture, equipment, I mean, everything about us gets down to analysis and results, you know, in theory. And, you know, because of that, things like systems engineering, reliability, even even when I did my, you know, doctoral studies, I... I took on level of repair analysis um, and (laughs) realized that that is like, you know, almost solely governmental. And and yet we still do a horrible job at it. Um, You know, a lot of these things are born of the military. um, But it's just we try to do it on such a large scale because of the large scope that we own. and, And we kind of fall short in that regard, which is you know I, I guess i guess one of our own unique challenges having such large enterprises at our at our disposal that would be a, a natural challenge but uh you figure after all these years we'd kind of start to approach it a little differently
1: <laughs> yeah you would hope so but a lot of a lot of large organizations get stuck in a culture right and like that's that's what we see you know wherever we go um obviously most of the places i go there their company has not been around 200 years uh, like yours, but culture builds up and it takes a lot of effort to to change it. And that's kind of the barrier to most of reliability is, you know, it seems logical, it seems to make sense, but it's a lot of work to convince people to to kind of get on board with you and a lot of education to do that. And that's kind of one of the reasons why I, started the podcast was like, if we can get this out to more people than just reliability people, if we can get this maintenance people, we can start educating. And the first, first step, in my opinion, to changing somebody's mindset is really to educate them on the benefits of, you know, actually like, what is this change going to do for them?
2: I couldn't agree more. I mean, uh, you know, for for me, uh, I always I always view as you know the best way to develop the reliability culture, you know, is to to start with training and education. I mean, you've get you could have all the leadership uh, initiative in the world. I mean, look what happened with uh, with TQM, total quality management, in the 80s and 90s with the military. We never really embraced it, even though we had you know these admirals pushing out policies left and right saying thou shalt, uh, you know, become TQM gurus. It, it never stuck, uh, with us. And, and part of that reason was it was words written on paper and a policy. No one ever received training on or, you know, not enough of, uh, no one embraced it as this, this great thing at the appropriate levels that was going to benefit us. We never saw the, um, the value in, you know, diverting our limited attention and resources to embracing, that methodology or, or you know, cultural mindset or whatever we want to refer to it as. Um, and it's the same way with, our, uh, with reliability. I mean, if you, if you want to have a, a, a culture, a strong reliability culture, you must invest in developing that culture. You have to put your time and effort into showing people the value and then providing them with the tools to realize that value. And it all starts you know, with uh, the convergence of that education and culture, uh, you know, across the board. And what I mean by convergences, you know, it's not a top-down or bottom-up approach. It, it kind of has to happen simultaneously. I mean, of course, the the top of the the chain has to have enough um, understanding and and education to to push the initiative. Um, but you know, it's kind of a futile effort if you if you don't invest heavily in in the people that are actually executing and maintaining and and running those programs. So, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. Education and training are, are probably the most critical parts to that reliability culture in my eyes.
1: So with that education, you know, you like, you're really in an interesting spot because you work at a school. Do you guys have any reliability engineering courses or do you teach any concepts?
2: Uh, we teach some concepts, uh, although we don't, Specifically focus on uh, reliability in their training programs. Our schools are, you know, what would be the equivalent of trade schools in um, in the civilian sector. So, you know, people, students come to our programs to become welders and firefighters and electricians and machinery technicians and mechanics for weapons systems and these people that that uh, that come to us they come to us because they want to enter those trades in the military and you know a- obtain those skills so they can go back out in the fleet and have that that new culture and identity and and skill set at the at their disposal for the remainder of their career because of that our our and the way our training system is set up where it's very requirements driven by um, you know human performance technology analysis which you know for better or for worse we have uh, at our you know, as our mandate for developing training has driven us to, to go a lot to performance-based um, requirements. So, you know, unfortunately what it's done is it's taken a lot of the, um, you know, let's talk about these theories and show you how they apply to your work. It's taken a lot of that out of our training and against our will. So we do um, teach about reliability when we talk about conducting maintenance and and um, and and the intricacies of the maintenance programming. But these students really don't embrace or um, even understand that what they're talking about is reliability, because we're just not given the opportunity to teach it. But uh, man, if I could, I'd I'd put about a week up front, right after their uh, their apprentice leadership program and training, I'd throw them right into a week or two of reliability so they could get an understanding of what they were stepping into.
1: Yeah, for sure. Like you know this as well because you know you are a you know a maintenance technician, but it's i i think the one of the most dangerous or good in a in a way um thing is is teaching your mechanics and your maintenance people reliability. They just come up like they're working on the tools they see how stuff's done it they can they come up with brilliant ideas
2: yes 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 and yes <laughs> we um we would we would actively do this on the ship when i was uh you know the engineer officer on my ship you know you're the senior engineer it's your culture to develop i started pushing um on day 1 to improve the maintenance program on board through rcm um you know fundamentals you know look the way we looked at our maintenance the way we translated that uh that readiness the way we <clears throat> um you know approached readiness in our reporting to the command about operational readiness of the assets you know all that stuff we started to push toward a little bit of a more of a reliability focused um you know, mindset. And the, and the reason we did that is so we could show those mechanics, those technicians, those electricians, we could show them how that all came together. I mean, immediately upon pushing some of that down and talking to them about like what it really means to have a reliable plant, we started to realize uh, returns on the maintenance. It was like night and day um, for our actual, like, not just qualitative stuff, like the, the, the cultural change, but A lot of the quantitative uh, results of it were, you know, reduced downtime, uh, reduced repair times. You know, all of our engineering metrics started to shift because we started to take a different look at the plant. And I, I really hope that some of that stuck with those guys, you know, the 40 people that were in my department, because... You know, even though they didn't really understand maintenance, I mean, or sorry, fun, uh, the fundamentals of reliability center maintenance, you know, they, n- none of them had read Mowbray or, you know, gone through uh, a course at the University of Tennessee or, you know, any of these resources we we have available to us to to really dive into uh, reliability center maintenance. None of them had had that. They were actually exercising the uh, the tenants and And uh, and mindset of reliability engineering without even knowing it and and seeing the results. And that was motivating them to keep doing it. It was the
0: results.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. No. Um, So I guess I want to ask you on that is you you monitor KPIs. What, you know, like what metrics are you looking at? So with the
2: okay, so our metrics are set up around operators' minds. You got to kind of, <laughs> you have to understand the way the Coast Guard does business to a certain degree to understand our our metrics. If you took one cursory look at our reliability-centered maintenance programming, you would you would say, okay, I see a lot of things that are uh, you know traditional reliability um, elements. You would you would hear about uh, mean time between failure. Um, you'd 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 hear about um, you know different statusing for equipment. Readiness, but what you would miss uh, entirely if you weren't immersed in the in the culture of the Coast Guard is the fact that our operational focus is much different than it is in 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 some regards uh, to our civilian counterparts in like manufacturing, right? So for us, it's not about um, it's not about whether the plant can meet the same percentage of Efficiencies, right? Or, you know, are we are we producing the right amount of product in a certain measured period of time? For us, it's almost like you have to move everything up a level because you've got admirals with multiple stars on their collars trying to make a decision about where to move ships and whether those ships that are there can respond to the um, national strategic initiatives of the U.S. government. So. You know, they're looking at things like how many days away from home port is a ship capable of producing? And it starts to drive this metrics perspective from the top down instead of from the maintenance and reliability community out. It starts to push this mentality from the top down in this military culture where, to them, reliability is about whether the asset can be on site doing its job or not. And that's not really what a reliability engineer is thinking of with the number one mean diesel engine. Because we may take that engine out of service for unplanned maintenance or you know even for planned maintenance, and we look at that metric um, as something impactful, whereas the operational community sees you're still fully mission capable or partially mission capable. And that's how they're measuring the success of your unit. So they may see that your unit still has – mission success and <laughs> the key performance indicators and, and things that they're looking at are, hey, did we get the hours out of the asset that we needed? Um, and the asset being the entire ship where the engineers are looking at the number one main diesel engine as this repeat offender, right? Like this thing keeps taking us out of fully mission capable and putting us in a partially mission capable status. Um, but hey, the operators know you're mission capable and they're happy. So you know, maybe the, the incentive to push more resources your way for maintenance aren't there maybe you know the fight for uh, financial support and and you know manpower doesn't materialize that the engineer knows they need the workforce they need to get that engine to stop being an inhibitor to uh mission performance because the operational community really doesn't feel it in their in their metrics of how we're tracking things so I mean that that is not the normal conversation I, I would assume for most people to to have about metrics, engineering metrics. But when we look at like mean time between failure, we're not we're not trending it and tracking it on the same level that a uh, a plant would because it doesn't impact the performance the same way. If if that mean time between failure for that piece of equipment doesn't affect the operational metric of the asset and take it from fully mission capable to a lesser capable um, uh, status it kind of falls by the wayside it doesn't it doesn't really become much of a talking point even within the engineering community because we get pulled and focused on certain uh mission drivers right so if you have a piece of equipment that costs you and you see this everywhere in every industry you know if you went out and asked your your plant manager Hey, uh, what what are your top five concerns for the plant? I'll bet you that list of the top five concerns don't match the top five cost drivers for maintenance, right? I mean, because your finance people are looking at the cost drivers, your your business managers may be looking at cost drivers in production, but the engineer uh, in the plant might be saying, "Man, I have to stop and work on this thing four times a day, but it doesn't have the same impact on operations as that thing that died once and took us down for you know three days." So. You know, we, we have this problem with, at least in, in, in the Coast Guard, with determining which metrics matter most to us based on a methodology like, you know, following reliability principles or does the operational importance supersede everything? And that's kind of what we get trapped with. Um, hopefully that made some sense to people that are listening and it didn't go in too many circles, but, you know, we're, we're, we're driven by operators in the Coast Guard and that's just the way it is for us.
1: I, I don't think you're unique in that sense. Like I come from a mining background and what we called, you know, like being mission ready, it was just called availability. So which means like the asset could, like if you turned it on, it would work essentially. Um, and so that was like kind of the, one of the main metrics for maintenance, I guess. That we looked at, and so something that is kind of, I mean, we talked about it in the in the uh, Paul Crocker podcast. Asset management is kind of the most important thing. Is what is the vision goals of your organization? Whether that's the Coast Guard, whether that's you know a, a manufacturing plant, a mine, it doesn't really matter, and. Every, kind of everything that you should do should align to those actions, and so it does change RCM, right? Like RCM, one of the one of the big inputs is like the cost or the criticality. So it's like when we talk about cost, it's not just the actual dollars and cents, but it's also you know the economic cost or sorry the environmental cost, the safety cost, and so for you, it, it could be just that having the ships ready to go is, is the number one priority. And then maybe the, the financial cost of doing that is just what it is.
2: Right. Yeah. I mean, the problem for us is, uh, you know, and this, this spans so many different levels of the organization, but, um, and, and so many different types of business and function lines, but you know, we're not a profit generating organization. And that changes a lot of the prioritization for things like maintenance and, and operations. Um, because, you know, certain fleets that service certain missions, uh, you know, have different levels of coverage and redundancy than others do. And, and And by that, I mean, you could have, you know, four of the same type of ship in one area. And one ship not being operational, they may just activate one of the other ships, which is obviously a huge inconvenience and unplanned, but it can it can work. Whereas in other missions we 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 lose that um because there is no other asset. There is no redundancy there. And um you know because we're not profit generating, we throw our money at, at things in different ways and um and we sometimes don't realize where we could have invested our money to get a better return on investment, right? <laughs> so, you know, I think that that happens a lot in, in, you know, and it's, it's probably a pretty significant challenge for, you know, some of, some of our listeners, you know, that are, that are running multiple uh, lines of production, right. You know, maybe, maybe one takes priority over another, or you have the ability to have some redundancy in your plant that, that can help counteract some of those impacts. But, you know, it, it becomes this, this issue, at least at the strategic levels, like when I was working at headquarters where, yeah, I'd be biting my tongue at a table because you know, if we had to worry about generating a profit, we'd be putting our money over here instead of over there because over here, we get a return on the investment that we're throwing away over there. right? And it, 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 can, it can drive you mad because you know, for us, if we look at our maintenance goals, it's always like 100% preventative maintenance completion. You know Everything for us kind of hinges on preventive maintenance. If we can get all that preventive maintenance done We'll we'll take a huge bite out of uh, our reactive work, right? Our our unplanned maintenance. Um, we'll we'll have less of that. Well, go ask a uh, uh, a maintenance manager whether a hundred percent completion of of preventive maintenance is possible. You know, if you ask a maintenance manager in the Coast Guard, they're going to tell you absolutely not. You know, and which is which is because of resourcing, not because of desire or or uh, you know. Actual ability, um, it's, it's because of capacity. We don't have the workforce and the time available and the, and the budget to do it. So, you know, all these different reasons cause us to have these different, um, you know, cultural expectations for what RCM can do for us. And that, that has influenced our ability to focus on RCM as something worthwhile to invest in. And that's what drives me kind of up the wall a little bit is, you know, if they could only see what RCM could save them and they had to actually account for a profit they might actually invest more in rcm <laughs> and that's my frustration
1: no that's it's definitely frustrating and it's definitely something that you know it's the battle and and uh you know if anyone listening has any has any tips like feel free to reach out to lucas and you know cuz we're a community so I, i'm sure you're going to get some messages and there's no doubt about that
2: Absolutely. Yeah. I, I welcome it because, um, you know, as much as, uh, as we all labor over these things and spend time immersed in them, you know, it's, it's, you can never be the perfect reliability engineer, you know, point that person out, identify who that, you know, person is they they don't exist. You know, this, that's one of the beauties of reliability is that it's, it really is kind of like a boundless field. You know, we get trapped in the numbers and, and trapped in the, in the processes and all of these things. But, you know, it really is boundless work and that's what makes it so interesting. It's, you can be very creative with it. And because of that, we never finish learning. You know, we always have so much to learn as people in this community. And, uh, you know, you, you hit it head, you know, right on the head, you know, one of the things I've recognized about the reliability community outside of my military service, you know, just in this last few months that I really started, you know, diving into forming a network um, exterior to the military, you know, with some, with some concerted effort is that it really is a family and it's been amazingly welcoming. And I just, I just, uh, I welcome anyone's advice, perspective, anything, anyone wants to reach out to me and help me. I am down to take that uh, that that on. I appreciate it.
1: No, perfect. We'll we'll definitely um like obviously I'll tag you on on LinkedIn on all the posts. So we'll we'll put the call out and see what we see what you get. <laughs> appreciate that. So, last thing before we get you out of here, tell us a little bit about Marino Consulting.
2: Okay. Um well, one, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to talk about it. Um and uh, and two, uh i'm i'm kind of a one man show right now which is not abnormal for consultants uh and i've been very fortunate to have the support of my network uh since i started consulting uh mentors around me that i've known for 20 years that were you know out in industry consulting before i decided to jump into it um have really been influential in kind of showing me uh, you know what our value is as a community uh, and, and how to produce quality reliability work as a consultant on the outside. I like to call out Hank Kosovar in particular at Guardian Technical um, Services. He's been fantastic, you know, prior uh, Coast Guard officer, um, a couple of people over at BMT, um, uh, that that have been fantastic. Um, you know, it, it's just been great. So what they've done is is really helped me refine my message and refine my business focus because when I first got into this, just like everything else I ever jump into, I wanted to do everything. You know, it's all so exciting and it's all so fun. And I I mean it I might sound sick in the head when I say I love doing like a Femia, <laughs> but I love doing Femia. It's great. Um, you know, I got into this because of level of repair analysis, to be honest with you. you know, When I finished my, uh, my doctorate, I said, wow, there's this huge gap out there for completing level of repair analysis, which is, which is really a logistic support activity um, you know, that's completely reti- uh, tied to reliability. And my, kind of my objective was to tie those two things together in a way to benefit organizations. So you know, I like to focus on reliability-centered maintenance programs helping other people um, either develop a program or assess their program, conduct the different functions of RCM and, uh, and link them with this uh, Laura model that I created that kind of shows you the big picture for resourcing maintenance. Uh, and then kind of give you the, the snapshot on that, With the level of repair analysis method that, uh, that I employ, um, it shows you how your maintenance and your manpower and your training and your financial resources are all tied together. So it kind of introduces more of a business case um, analysis side to the, to the traditional Laura. And uh, yeah, that's, so that's kind of what I do. And, and, you know, the easiest way to reach out to me is through LinkedIn. Um, I'm very active on LinkedIn and I'm in the process of uh, standing up a website, Merino consulting services.com.
1: Awesome. so do you have anything, are you going to be at any conferences later this year or this year?
2: Um, I am, as of right now, I'm planning on going to the uh, University of Tennessee's uh, symposium in, I believe that's March. Um, waiting to hear back now if I'm going to be a presenter or not. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been very uh, interested in what UT is doing because uh, in, in my former uh, assignment for the Coast Guard. I was the um, advanced education program manager for engineering and I used to send people to the university of Tennessee uh, solely because of their uh, focus on reliability. So, you know, I'm very interested to, uh, to try and make it out to that event and meet some of the people that I've talked to over the phone and <laughs> for years and uh, actually put a, a face with a name and, uh, and, and get to get comfortable with the community there. And then of course uh, looking for some, um, Looking for some uh, traction uh, next week at the uh, fleet maintenance um, symposium that uh, ASNI puts on every year.
1: Awesome. Perfect. Everyone listening, if you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, it's available, I don't know, 10 different platforms. There's also the one minute tips of the day that come out every day, including the weekends. Lucas, thanks for coming on.
2: It's been my pleasure, sir. Thank you.
1: We're definitely going to have you back on. You're a great guest. You told me you're going to bring energy, but you brought a ton of energy and I loved it.
2: <laughs> I apologize. I, I, it's just kind of one of my, one of my uh, character traits, I guess, that I can't really control.
1: Nothing to apologize. It was great having you on. And I look forward to the next time. And maybe maybe we'll talk about uh, you know, driving through tornadoes or I'm not even sure what else. Did you go through the Bermuda Triangle?
2: Yes I have been through the, I have been through the Bermuda triangle <laughs>